The reading today is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And that can be found on page 1182 of the Church Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience." and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Grant. Well, let us pray. Father, we do thank you we can be here this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to see the wonders within and be transformed by them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, personal transformation is one of the most sought after things, I think, um, in our lives. It doesn't matter who we are, deep down as people, there's going to be aspects of our lives that we're happy with and we like and there'll be other aspects of our life that we would love to have changed. Now, just in one very small way, just come down to Manly Beachfront any morning, 6.30 through to about 10.30, and you'll see people trying to change their lives. Uh, there'll be personal coaches out there, uh, and as one American said to Bruce Baird, who was visiting, he said, you know what, it's just like a great big outdoor gymnasium here in Manly. Couldn't believe it. And I cycle down and swim with the pink caps, and. There's just people everywhere and there's personal coaches and group coaches. They're all trying to work out and change their bodies and get their life in order. And they're not the only people uh, who work to try and bring change. You've got personal life coaches. You'll get mentors that people can have in work and I've uh, accessed that on occasions, very helpful. Psychologists, counsellors. And all these people are trying to work with us to change us for the better. And it's a very beneficial thing. And into that mix, you can throw religions. And for centuries, um, 
People have offered connection with God as a way of being transformed and no doubt we would want to speak into that void or into that um, arena because the church for 2,000 years has not so much offered change but rather testified to the way lives can be changed through the Lord Jesus. And you don't have to have been around long to have heard people say this great phrase, Jesus changed my life. And if you want a scriptural testimony to that, the most famous one I think is in John chapter 9, where the man who was born blind is healed by Jesus. And then when confronted by the religious leaders who are trying to have a go at Jesus, he says, look, I really don't know much about him, but at the end of the day, I was blind and now I see. And those words symbolically speak for so many people through the history of the church. We were blind, but now we see we've had our life changed by him. And today we start this new series on Colossians. And it's a wonderful letter. And it's a letter that testifies to the incredible centrality of Jesus Christ in life. And the series is called Above All because what we will see is he is the one who literally is above all. And today we're going to see as we meet the people of Colossae that Paul is writing to that he is the one who transforms people's lives through his wonderful gospel. And Paul says to them uh, these wonderful words, you know, in Christ is actually the fullness of life. And isn't that what people are seeking in this world? A fullness of life? And what he wants the Colossians to do is realise that that fullness of life is found in Christ and that they must stay rooted and established in him, just as they had begun that way. So if you've got your Bibles there, do open up uh, if you want to use the ones under the seats. Uh, it's funny, I have some people tell me that uh, they send me messages, Bruce, I'm on my phone in church, it's not because I'm on social media, I'm actually looking at the Bible and taking notes. Uh, and that's okay, don't worry, I do the same thing. Uh, but we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 1 of Colossians, page 1182 of the church Bibles. Let me begin. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. It's worth noting these introductory words before we get into kind of the main part of what we want to look at today. Uh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was an incredible figure and intellect and leader and missionary. And as he writes to this group of people, they're in Colossae. There's a great deal of affection. They're the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to them he bestows upon them. But he puts a very significant description of himself. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Uh, and it's worth unpacking that. He is an apostle. He's someone who is sent with authority by the Messiah, by the King. And so he's writing in the name of Jesus and in the authority of Jesus, but not just that, he's writing by the will of God. And I want to say that at the start because, you see, this letter is a letter that is one that has authority. It came not just from the pen of the human apostle, Paul, but ultimately it comes from his king and our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and from his God and Father, and it's by his will. And it's actually God's word to us. 
And I say that because I think one of the questions we often may ask, us, may ask ourselves, and maybe we don't articulate it, is, you know, is this book really relevant for us today? I mean, every week we come here and we'll open up different parts and seek to explain it. What is the relevance of it, particularly uh, when you've had just six weeks ago, the census data comes out and you get these headlines in the Manly Daily, we're losing our religion. And I think it's easy to think when you read those kind of articles and you look at the data from the National Census, um, is what we're doing here relevant? Does this word actually speak a relevant word to us in the 21st century? Plenty been said in the media over the last six weeks about the apparent decline of religion and the church and Christianity. And one of the interesting stats was the rise of people ticking the box, no religion. Now, it was interestingly placed at the top, and that's quite okay. Um, and you can see there on the screen, there, if you go back 50 years to 1966, almost that question didn't exist. Everyone pretty much identified with the Christian faith. If you go back 15, 16 years ago to 1991, the question had begun to emerge, but yet people who had religious background, very strong majority in the country, just under 80% in the mid-70s, but today that number has dropped significantly and 32%, I think it's slightly higher here in Manly, would identify as having no religion. So what's this saying to us? I think you could say a number of things. I suspect that people have probably been, if I can say, not identifying formally with one of the religious um, groups and the Christian faith for a number of years. But they probably feel more comfortable to actually articulate that now. They are shirking off the nominal religion that maybe was a part of their youth or something like that, and now they're saying actually, no, I have no religion. What is evident though, is that Christianity no longer holds central place in our society. And I said that just two weeks ago when we looked at the issue of same-sex marriage. Uh, we are no longer in the centre, we are on the periphery now of our culture, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Other religions are growing in the country, people are cutting ties to Christianity, and yes, less people are attending churches. Is this the end of the world? No, it's not the end of the world. And I don't think it's necessarily bad news. I actually think it gives us an exciting opportunity to present the most compelling message in a way that is free from the, some of the unhelpful religious tradition that people may have grown up with and actually present what we are on about, the Lord Jesus Christ, to fresh ears so that they can hear it with a fresh voice. And what we're going to look at in this, chap, uh, in this letter over this term is actually incredibly relevant because it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ who literally is above all, and above not just Australia and Manly and Sydney, but he's above all nations. And he speaks a word to the world with authority that can change every person's life. It's the word of the gospel. And what I want to look at this morning is, as we begin our journey through Colossians, the powerful gospel. And I've got four things just to reflect on from this Bible reading that we had in the first part of chapter 1. Uh, the gospel is a transforming message, it's a universal message, it's a relational message, and importantly, it's a very personal message to each one of us. Well, firstly, the powerful gospel is a transforming message. Now, as you go through Colossians, four times he mentions the word gospel. Uh, it's from a Greek word, which is euangelion, uh, it's where you get the concept of evangelism from, and as a word, if I can put it very simply, it's 
a word that describes a message that's got significance, authority. It's a word that, if I can say, is news that you need to listen to that's announcing something very significant. And when we speak of the gospel and when Paul speaks of the gospel, he's speaking of the message or news that is all about the Lord Jesus Christ that is for the world that we need to take heed of and shape our lives by. And so we read here in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Now, genuine Christianity, whenever you see it, will always, always be accompanied by transformation. It's just what happens. When people hear the gospel and believe it and accept it into their life, it changes them. And Paul is here writing to a group of believers that he hasn't met. He had ministered previously in Ephesus, one of the most significant parts of his ministry. And from that ministry, literally the word about Jesus Christ, the gospel, had gone out to the surrounding areas as people who had come to faith in Christ now took the message out. One of those was Epaphras that we'll talk about a little bit later. And he brings this message that he's heard and received to this new group of people in this town of Colossae. Paul actually has never been there. Paul's never met them. He's only heard about them. And what you see here is there are three very key distinctives that Paul mentions that have become fundamentally associated with these new followers of Jesus Christ. He says they have a new belief. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting. We often would say... Jesus Christ, which is why people sometimes think that's his surname, which of course I understand it's not. It's a title. And it's a significant title because it's from Jewish roots. He is the Messiah Jesus or the Christ Jesus, in other words, the King. The promised King from the Jewish people. What's interesting is these people who are not Jewish have now accepted him because this Jesus is not just a Jewish figure, he's a figure who is for all history. And all people and all nations and all tribes and all tongues. And they now have faith in him. They trust in him. They've given their life to him. Verse 4 also says they have a new lifestyle. He's heard about their love they have for all God's people. And so they've actually been reorientated in the way they see life and are now living life. Now one of the fundamental issues we've got in our country here is that basically people are concerned for themselves first, second, third. It's one of the great problems with politics at the moment in terms of trying to govern the country. Uh, people typically don't want what's best for the country when you really push and shove. It's what's best for me. And please don't take away my entitlements and my rights. And that lifestyle and that orientation is what is completely overturned in the gospel. We no longer look to ourselves as number one. We look outwards to other people. And you see it here in verse 4. There's a new lifestyle. They love God's people. And there's a new orientation. 
You see, this faith and this love spring from the hope that was stored up for you in heaven. In other words, they took hold of Christ who is in heaven and the hope of eternal life and it changed their world. They looked on the world differently as they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and it changed how they then related to others. And it was demonstrable, it was visible and that change had become news. And Paul had heard about it. Now, it's interesting when you think about what do Christians look like. Um, I googled this up. And you see, if you ask me, my memory growing up of what Christians look like, it was kind of like this. And look, I don't want to kind of point it out, but just have a look at the tie. <laughs> and what's embarrassing is he's got his big Bible there under his arm right next to it. Now, I'll, I'll flick it on because I don't want to shock you too much. But I think some, I put it up there because I think sometimes when people think of Christians, uh, they think of people who look different, daggy, nerdy. Uh, no doubt that was my case growing up. That's not what you see here with Paul. You see, he has a vision of them or a picture of them. And it's not about what they wore. It's about who they'd become. And they'd become this group of people who stood for Jesus. It was known. They'd become this group of people who now loved profoundly. It was seen. They'd become this group of people who had a new orientation. It was for the world to come and not this world. And let me say, nothing has changed in terms of what Christians should look like. Those three great markers are the great description that Paul has at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, when speaking of love and speaking of the Christian life, he says, well, these three remain. What are they? Faith, hope and love, the greatest of which is love because it will endure into eternity. And that's what we are to look like and it's what the gospel does. When people encounter the risen Christ, he changes them. So that we now have a new saviour that we follow, a new love that we bring, and a new orientation in this world that this world is not what we live for, but we live for the coming kingdom of God. I want you to stop and ask yourself the question, faith, hope and love, or faith, love and hope. Is this the transformation that Jesus has done in your life? Have you taken hold of Jesus personally so that he is now the one who is your saviour and king? He's your Christ and you trust him and you've given your life to him? Have you stopped living for yourself now as number one and now live to love others? Do you know that your eternity is secure and you live now with hope? You see, when you answer yes to those three questions, you're evidencing that God has genuinely been at work in your life. And this is why Paul gives great thanks. And I just want to stop now and just reflect on this. Uh, this is a very warm letter, this letter of Colossians. It's great to read. Uh, it's not kind of confrontational like Galatians. We did that two years ago. Uh, there's really a great warmth here. And he's really thanking God for how he looks at this church, though he's not seen them physically, he knows what's happened. 
And I was thinking about us as a church, as your senior pastor, because I see this same work of God taking place here at St Matthew's. Genuine faith that people are coming to in Christ, expressed in real love towards other people, and particularly people who are different. And it springs from a genuine hope and assurance of eternal life in Christ. I see it in the incredible way that people are responding to try and help and save our brother in Christ, Dave Enduamana, Burundi Dave. And he literally just walked in off the Corso four years ago. And all of us are praying for him. I've got hundreds of signatures that we're wanting to present to the minister. I have literally over 100 letters of personal support from individuals and families. It's not too late to write if you'd like to still get them into the office. I see it in the way our church has embraced, in his words, our big black brother, Neville Naden, and his wife, Kathy, and the wonderful way that we've seen in just a very microcosm experience, a reconciliation of white and black with the way we're partnering together on equal terms with our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Neville and Kathy and the ministry at Broken Hill. I see it in the way you care for people on the edge of life and society. And there's no doubt this is not like a normal suburban church here at Manly. And someone said to me, you know, isn't it a bit like being in the suburbs? I just laughed and went, no, it's not like being in the suburbs. <laughs> you just never know who's going to walk in here. And that's the reality, isn't it? Uh, and I often say to people, you know, we've had streakers in church. Did you know that we've had streakers in church? Got to come at night for that kind of uh, excitement in church. <laughs> Funniest thing ever, though, uh, minister was preaching was Luke. And uh, they'd come in, they got sort of tried to be ushered out. And he said, look, I've had a look, eyes to the front. He said, it's not very impressive. <laughs> Place roared with laughter and these two drunk Irish backpackers sculpted out. But you could be a church in that environment that really has a fortress mentality, but that's not what St Matthew's is. There's a genuine love for people on the edge here. And the soup kitchen is just one expression of a church that loves the people of this region who are on the margins, who suffer with mental health, who are homeless. And I think one of the most wonderful things was one of the weddings I went to where a who's who of kind of life was here and one of the guys invited was homeless. And the ushers kind of tried to push him out and I said, no, actually, Noel is invited here. They went, oh, okay. And the ushers weren't from our church. They didn't know Noel. And uh, he was warmly brought in. And I see it in the way the soup kitchen, the people who come are not them. It's often easy to think of them. They're us. Do you know what I'm saying? One of the most wonderful things I think every year is to have members of our soup kitchen here at the celebration dinner with us. And you see, that's the reality of the Christian faith. We have people from all levels of society here, from the upper echelons down to the lowest, but we're actually one in Christ, and I see it here, and it's wonderful, and I thank God for it. And that's the reality of the transformation that the gospel brings, and it's what Paul had heard about in Colossae. It's a message of transformation, but secondly, it's a universal message. And one of the ways you see the relevance in the power of the gospel is how this message for all people works in all the world. 
And he says to them in uh, verse 6, second part, he says, in the same way, in other words, just as the gospel's taken root in your life, actually the gospel's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And I think he says this because, you see, you think if you're in the Colossians' shoes, and what's come to notice, and we're going to see this as we go through, is there's been some strange teaching that's come in that's kind of upsetting them and not quite sure what to do with it, and it's not right. And Paul's writing to get them established in Christ, but also deal with the false teaching that's coming. And he wants them to know that their experience is not a unique one. They're not the only ones in the world that are following this person called Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the King. In fact, he says, this gospel, this announcement about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord of the world, is actually bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Now, no doubt his concept of the world would have been smaller in that day, but the reality is, and we know this from church history, the gospel literally went out to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. It went to the world that was known in that day. And wherever it went, it would take root and it would bear fruit. And he's saying to them, guys, you're not alone. And I think it's easy to be despondent when you hear news that religion is declining in Australia and more people tick no religion, a third of the country. But I can assure you the gospel is still growing here. Religion might be declining. The gospel is growing. But more importantly, it's actually growing all over the world. Even as you sit here in church today, the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. It's one of the reasons we changed um, the vision statement to growing God's church through the gospel because we wanted to have God's vision for St. Matthew's, which is that the gospel grows throughout the whole world. And I don't know if you know this, but the fastest growing areas of Christianity today aren't Australia. Now, that's probably no surprise, is it? Do you know what it is? Uh, I looked up a couple of surveys. Nepal and China are at the top. Nepal's actually number one. China, number two. Now, you know what's number three and four? It really surprised me. It's in the Middle East. As a percentage of population, third was United Arab Emirates, fourth, Saudi Arabia. Other research has shown that Guess what will be the largest Christian nation potentially in 12 years' time? China. They may well have more people going to church by 2030 than America does. Now, at one level, you're kind of shocked by that. At another level, think what happened with the first church and the early church and the growth of it over 300 years. And the way it just took root and flourished from the margins. Well, in China, it's from the underground that the gospel is growing up. It's remarkable. And you just think about our own church here at St Matthews. We've got people from Australia, New Zealand. We've got British Christians. We've got African Christians. We've got American Christians, both North and South Americas. We've got Asian Christians. We've got European Christians. We have Middle Eastern Christians here. We've got Pacific Island Christians. There is no continent or place in the world where the gospel is not represented here, just at St Matthew's. And it's a reflection of how this message about Jesus Christ is relevant to all people. And you see at the end of the verse 6, it says this, it's gone to the whole world just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. And the clue is here as to why this message is so powerful. 
It's when they understood grace. One of the universal conditions that we all experience as people who are made in God's image, sadly, is the experience of guilt and shame and of brokenness. It's who we are. Made in the image of God, so there's something wonderful about all humanity and you see that across the world, but you will also see across the world the evidence and the reality of sin, that people across the world turn their back on him. And the outworking of that in our lives typically is guilt and shame and brokenness because when we go against God and turn our back on God, that's the human experience. And the word of grace is the word of the gospel. And it's a word that confronts us with who we are in God's sight. We're actually worse than we really understand ourselves to be in terms of our sin. But we are more loved than we'll ever know. And God's word of grace in the gospel is the word of grace that deals with our guilt and our shame that flows from our sin and rebellion and restores us so that we know that we are loved and accepted. And you know, it's interesting that song, Good, Good Father, it's quite a very simple song at one level, but it's so profound. We are loved in a way that is beyond words. We're worse than we could ever imagine. We're more loved than we'll ever know. It's the reality of God's grace that gives us new confidence in God. We are accepted eternally. And for that, we can be assured we have a new identity before God. We are God's holy and loved children, as Paul says at the start of this letter. And we have a new experience of God, his love poured into our hearts so that we can give thanks to him with joy. Thirdly, it's a relational message, this gospel. How does the gospel come to us and to the world? Well, look at verse 7. It's the same way now as it was back then. You learned it, that's speaking of the gospel, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And Epaphras would have been there most likely at Ephesus and he's gone out to Colossae and he said, he also told you of your love in the Spirit. The gospel was learnt by the Colossians from a person. Think of a teacher with deeply loved students. They don't just pass on knowledge, they teach in relationship. Uh, think of a mother with their daughter. They do life together, but they're learning life, they're sharing life. Think of a coach with his beloved team that he or she coaches. It's not just instruction, there is heart. And the gospel is a message that is fundamentally learned in relationship. And the Colossians learn it from Epaphras. He came, he shared, not just in the words of Thessalonians, the message of the gospel, he would have shared his life with them. And that's what Paul says to the Thessalonian church, you know me, I came with these words, but I shared my life with you. And that's how the gospel takes root, it's through the wonderful medium and the powerful medium of relationships. And you can see the reality of that when you just think about our own lives. How many can point to a significant person who modelled and shared the Christian faith with them? Ask yourself the question, in my coming to faith, I'm getting you to ask this personally, was there a person who was significant for you 
in sharing the faith and modelling the faith to you. Nearly everyone I talk to says yes. There's someone they learned it from. They saw it in them. They heard it from them. And it's the very nature. Are we in agreement here? It's just the reality of how it comes. Pamphlets don't descend from the sky or arrive in your letterbox and people wake up and go, I'm going to believe it. No, you see it in a person. You hear it from a person. And that is the incredible power when you see people whose faith and life align. Now, let me show you some research that backs this up. Um, McCrindle Research Group, he's a Christian guy who does a lot of research both in the corporate world, political world, but also for churches, has done some recent research on faith and belief in Australia. And one of the things he was looking at is what are the top attractors to religion and spirituality? And in particular, he's thinking about the Christian faith and also what are the top detractors to religion and spirituality? Here's what he found. Um, 61% were greatly or mildly attracted to Christian faith, you could say, or just religion and spirituality, when they see people live out a genuine expression of their faith. That's the top attractor that they found. Second top attractor was experiencing a significant personal trauma of life change. In other words, um, there's kind of a positive thing when they see something in someone that they think, wow, they've got something and it's genuine, and they hear that that person is a Christian, they go, that attracts me. Because I can see a coalescence between their faith and the belief that's wonderful. The other thing is, if I can say a more difficult thing, when they go through a difficult time, they're open, and it causes them to reflect on life. But I want you to see what the top detractors are. Hearing from public figures who are an example of that faith was the top detractor, and I was thinking about this. Why is that? Now, this is my suspicion. I I can't tell you this for real, for sure, but it definitely coincides with what a lot of people I know think. When you hear people who are, if I can say, very well-known, profess Christian faith, and then you see incredible disconnect with how they live, think of some politicians that you may know who've said they're Christian, it turns people off. I remember wincing when people were kind of saying, oh, Mel Gibson's become a Christian. I think, well, that's great, but let's not parade him. If he gets his life under control under Christ, great. And there's this temptation when someone well-known becomes a Christian to parade them. But what often also gets paraded is the inconsistencies in their life. And what is most powerful is actually where you've got consistency of life and practice and belief together. The other big turnoff was miraculous stories. And it may be because of the sceptical nature of the Australian psyche. In other words, when you look at this, what is the best advertisement for the Christian faith? Well, it's not some celebrity Christian. It's actually just ordinary Mary and Joes who are living out their faith quietly but profoundly. They have an orientation towards heaven. They don't live for this world though they enjoy life in the world they're living for another world to come they love in a way that is profound and uncommon and when asked about it they point to Jesus 
The gospel came to Christian believers through an ordinary guy called Epaphras. And today it's no different. It comes to people through ordinary believers like you and me living out our faith and hope and love in the context of relationships as we seek to give witness to Jesus Christ and the hope we have in him. And if I can just put a plug in for reading the word one-to-one, I want you to have a look at this. Um, More than half of Australians are open to some extent to changing their religious views. And I want you to put that stat together with the first one. What most attracts people to the Christian faith? People who are genuine and consistent. And half of those people will be open to some extent to actually exploring. That's how I read it. In other words, we together, one by one, are going to have a much greater impact. And that's why for me, reading a gospel with someone who's open, who's inquiring, is such a powerful thing. And the word one-to-one is just a wonderful way to just step-by-step take someone through John's gospel and help them understand. Well, my time's almost up, and let me finish with how Paul finishes this section. It's his prayer. And he finishes by praying for these wonderful Christians in Colossae. Let me read you the prayer. For this reason, in other words, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. What did he pray? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In simple terms, they've come to faith and Paul is now praying that they're going to be growing in that faith and continue to be transformed by that faith. He wants them to bear fruit with good works, that they are known by how they live good lives. He wants them to continue to grow in their knowledge. In other words, the knowledge of the gospel and of God our Father in Christ is the fuel for continual transformation. He wants them to endure and be patient. He wants to have the strength and the power from God so that when they're under persecution or going through tough times, God will strengthen them to be resolute in their desire to live for Christ He wants their lives to be a living testimony for the gospel. And lastly, he wants them to be thankful. And he wants them to be filled with joy. Because honestly, one of the most powerful advertisements for the gospel is people's lives who are transformed and are joyful in Christ. Let me say, we've got enough grumpy Christians in the world. We need joyful Christians who don't look like overcooked steamed plum puddings. But resonate with the joy of the Lord. And friends, I want to stop there today and pray for us. Because all of us are a work in progress. None of us have arrived. And all of us need to keep praying these things for ourselves. And I want to ask us four pastoral questions as we finish. I'm going to pray for people individually along the lines of what Paul prayed. And so just bow your heads with me now as we finish. Who here today would say 
they really need to grow more in knowing God better. I know all of us always need that, but who particularly would say, yeah, I really need to know God better? I just want you to put your hand up because I want to pray for you. If that's you, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, fill these your servants with a growing knowledge of yourself. May your word come alive to them. May you speak to them personally in the days ahead and shape their thinking and understanding according to the gospel. May they grow in their knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul also prays that we would live a life worthy of being called a follower of the Lord Jesus. Who here today says they need prayer, that they would live in a way that is worthy of the Lord? Perhaps you're struggling in how you live. Just put your hand up. I want to pray for you. God bless you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, I pray that you continue to transform these servants by your gospel. May they know the comfort of your mercy and grace in their lives so that they are changed forever, but particularly this day and this week and this year. May you enable them to lead lives that reflect who you are and not the surrounding culture. Grant them repentance from the things they are clinging to and that are not of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul also wanted the Colossians to endure and persevere. Who here today would say that they just need special strength to persevere because they're facing opposition for their faith or are going through a tough time? If that's you, just put your hand up. I want to pray for you as well. God bless you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, I pray for these, your servants, that you would be with them this day by your Holy Spirit to strengthen and comfort them through whatever trial or hardship they are facing. Give them strength when they feel weak, light when there is darkness all around, and grace to endure through tough times. In Jesus' name, amen. And lastly, Paul wanted them to be filled with thanksgiving and joy. And I wonder today who here has a lack of joy in the Lord and they would like that to return to them so they are filled with thanksgiving. If that's you, just put your hand up. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, by your Holy Spirit, fill these servants of yours with the joy of the Lord. May they look to the Lord Jesus and be renewed by him and filled by his love. May they know the heights and breadth and depth and width of his love for them. May they find joy in knowing you, knowing that they've been rescued from darkness and brought into your kingdom of life. I pray, fill them with your spirit and the joy of the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to stop and we're going to sing our closing song. It's been a wonderful morning together. And let's rejoice.
and the great reality that we are in Christ through the gospel, saved by him. If you're a visitor, if you wanted to put your Connect card in, if you're a regular who doesn't give electronically, the baskets are coming around for the offertory. Let's stand.